is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on this show. And generally it's storytelling, but every once in a while we just goof off. Actually, this isn't goofy at all to us because we're going to be talking about ice, and we talk about things that matter to us every once in a while here. I mean, Hengler, for goodness sakes, has one of our all-time greatest segments, and it was about, well, man wipes. It was about it very was about important stuff. very much important, important stuff. than ice. Much more important than ice. And so for me, ice is an obsession. <laughs> I like good ice. I like putting everything on ice, milk on ice, ice cold Coke. And I've been getting a hard time from everybody here at the crew because I actually, when I built my new home, I had only one request, a custom ice machine. Nice. And everybody here is treating me like I'm some kind of android or some kind of <laughs> Just some kind of weasel. Well, anything's got to be better than those crescent-shaped ones that come out of the refrigerator that you bought at you know, Home Depot or something, right? Well, because oh, well, they absorb the smell of the broccoli and they <laughs> absorb the smell of the food. And then you put that in a perfectly good, beautiful cold Coca-Cola, and now it smells like broccoli Coke. <laughs> I don't want broccoli Coke. So, so I'm not crazy. The Wall Street Journal <laughs> the other day, and this that's proof that there's a paper. Right. Has on the front page because this is front page news, mm-hmm. Jesse. Sure, you mock me. I'm, I'm, I haven't said anything. No, I know you haven't. I'll get into your <laughs> beer obsessions and and a couple of others too. Well, you'll do a segment on that. And this one was in cocktails. Ice cubes are hot, huh. hot. Craft fans drop spheres and spears favor big squares. By the way, I don't have a big square. Mine are round cubes. Right. I'm in one of those spheres and spears. It's it's parts. unbelievably hard to actually find an ice cube. They're rectangular in shape or the crescent moon shaped or they're sphere shaped. I just want an ice cube. I, yeah. I have a cube bowl, Jesse. I'll bring yeah. you one. It's, it makes like two inch square cubes. But you have to break it out manually, right? And crack the... Yeah, but you have kids. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You do have kids. Built in slaves. Very, very... Stan is always <laughs> on it. He's always thinking about how to amortize those children. I don't want touching my ice cubes, though. That's a good point. <laughs> So here's how, the, here's how the story starts off. The world of high-end cocktails is being stirred. Uh, oh, well. The world of high-end cocktails is being stirred by a development that would have been unthinkable. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Perfect timing. So the world of high-end cocktails is being stirred by a development that would have been unthinkable in years past. Bartenders want to put ice cubes in the drinks. They have tried giant balls of ice or ice in the shape of a diamond or a five-inch spear to the surprise of craft fans who have been loading up drinks with so-called artisanal ice. <laughs> artisanal ice. I love this. However, even restaurants that boast of having an ice program to go with their cocktail program are turning back to the traditional cube. It's all coming back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The fancy cube pants are coming back to the cube. <laughs> And here's a quote. Ice spheres are so seven years ago, says Joseph Ambrose, owner of Favorite Ice Company, a hand-cut cocktail ice distributor in Washington that provides to about 30 bars in the area. We got to get this guy on. Mm -hmm. And I think there's one other person in here that we got to get on, too. We get this ice cube maker, this maestro of ice, and maybe we get some bar owner on as we go down. So it's, again, ice spheres are so seven years ago said Joseph Ambrose, owner of Favorite Ice Company. And it's the two-by-two cube that bars want most often. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The two-by-two cube. Classy, original. All the way back to the basics. Quote, we have drinkers who are really picky about ice, said Drew Hairston, bar manager for Bar Charlie in Washington, D.C., which makes artisanal ice in-house. Ooh, cutting out our friend Joseph Ambrose. We got to get both these guys on together. 
And here's what he says. He says, while some customers like smaller ice cubes because they melt faster, (laughs) he said, we have many other experienced bourbon drinkers who specifically require the cube. Now, this is interesting. Chuck Avery, a certified sommelier and artisanal ice expert, he says that the cube also looks more aesthetically pleasing compared to the other shapes. Yeah. So it's all about how the drink looks. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And there's one drink, by the way, like many upscale watering holes, Bar Charlie only serves its ice cubes in high-end drinks. These fancy cubes, like their $18 cocktail. <laughs> well, this better be good ice. Wow. At yeah. the $18 It'll cocktail. Like made out of Fiji water or something. <laughs> exactly. It's, it, it's got, uh, let's see. It involves first setting the drink on a piece of wood on fire, then placing the glass over the smoke when the fire is poured and put out. Then the customer then puts the cube in the smoked glass, the smoke that came up from the fire, and then pours the bourbon on top of it. Hmm. 18 bucks. We got to figure, we got to talk to Bar Charlie about this. So one girl says, Susan McCarthy says, if I was on a date, at least the giant ice cube would give us something to talk about. And so we're going to have to hit this segment hard. Uh, in the next couple of days, uh, Stan, we need a call out to, to Bar Charlie. And let me tell you, this guy here, Joseph Ambrose, co-owner of Favorite Ice Company, uh, who, and, and this sommelier, too. I like the idea that there's an actual sommelier and ice man. I mean, it's the ice, resident ice man, and they have their own ice program. So you can buy these things, apparently, or just set them on your countertop. Is that what you have? So you have your own individualized uh, ice maker not coming from the refrigerator. Yeah, that's right. It's like, it's situated next to our little like an bar. Appliance, yeah. Like an appliance, and it's sitting next to the uh, wine cooler, which is generally what people will do, and uh, where, where we pour drinks for folks. So I see you can get them for a couple hundred bucks for like the, the standard issue, but now I'm looking on, on like Google Shopping, yeah. and you can buy the industrial-sized ones that you can get like a, at a, a a hotel? hotel? Yeah. How much are they? Like $2,000. We should get one for the studio. I mean, I know there's only six of us, but imagine if we had our own ice machine. Did you ever notice those things smell just like Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland? I have not noticed that. <laughs> I'll have to take oh, yeah, a whiff. There's a musty. very Yeah, it's like an ozone kind of a smell that yeah, comes yeah. out of those things. They say that those things have more bacteria inside the ice machines than actual toilets do. Mm. Well, if we had an ice machine here, I would show you how I do cereal on ice milk. I would oh, show yeah. you how that works, but I would also need, I'd need my cereal, basically Captain Crunch is how you prove it, because Captain Crunch dissolves fast. Gourmet Captain Crunch. So gourmet Captain never Crunch. never put ice cubes in milk. That's no, like no. putting ice in beer. It's, it's, it should be a crime. So here's what you do. You take the ice cubes, you put them in a, in a, in a bowl, you pour the milk into a bowl, then you take a separate bowl and you take a colander, you pour the milk back through the ice in the colander, and then you do this several times. And as the milk <laughs> pours over the ice, it gets cold without getting sort of liquidy and ugly. This is why you don't like it. Have you, have you tried freezing milk into ice cubes? Not tried that yet. I have not tried Next that week. yet. We'll try that too. The subject is ice here on Our American Stories. And the story was in the Wall Street Journal, in cocktails, ice cubes are hot. Stay here with Our American Stories. We're ahead of the culture. We're ahead of the Wall Street Journal. And we'll talk to a couple of the folks in this story in the coming days. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love music here on the show. 
and we love history. And that's why this is our favorite segment, and Jesse brings us This Week in Music History. This Week in Music History, 1948, Donna Summer was born. Her 1979 U.S. number one single, Hot Stuff, is just one of her over 25 top 40 hits. She won a Grammy Award for the Best Female Rock Vocal Performance on this song in 1980. It was the very first year that award was given out. She beat out the very non-disco Ricky Lee Jones, Tanya Tucker, Carly Simon, and Bonnie Raitt. American singer-songwriter Hank Williams died of a heart attack brought on by a lethal cocktail of pills and alcohol at just 29 years old. Now you're looking at a man that's getting kind of mad. I had a lot to look, but it's all been bad. No matter how struggle and strive, I'll never get out of this world alive. Williams is regarded as one of the most important country music artists of all time. 35 of his singles placed in the top 10 of Billboard Country and Western bestsellers charts, 11 of which ranked number one, including Cold Cold Heart, Hey Good Lookin', Your Cheatin' Heart, and I'll Never Get Out of This World Alive. And in 1959, Johnny Cash played his first of three concerts for the inmates of San Quentin Prison in California. San Quentin, you've been living hell to me. You blistered me since 1963 I've seen them come and go and I've seen them die And long ago I stopped asking why San Quentin, I hate every inch of you You cut me and you scarred me through and through And I'll walk out a wiser, weaker man Mr. Congressman, you can't understand One of the audience members was then 19-year-old Merle Haggard who was in the midst of a 15-year sentence that he served three years of for grand theft auto and armed robbery. And in 1962, this week in music history, the Beatles auditioned for Decca Records in West Hampstead, London. Decca decided to reject the band in what is considered one of the biggest mistakes in music industry history. Speaking of the Beatles, in 1969, this week in music history, the entire shipment of John Lennon and Yoko Ono's album Two Virgins was seized by authorities in New Jersey due to the full frontal nude photograph of the couple on the cover. Ugh. The album was eventually wrapped in brown paper in record stores. 
1976, the Bay City Rollers went number one on the U.S. singles chart with Saturday Night. At the height of their U.S. success, the Scottish group signed a deal to promote a breakfast cereal. It would take another 35 years for a song with the day of the week as the title to reach number one in the States. Katy Perry finally broke the drought when last Friday night TGIF reached the top spot in 2011. And in 1987, Aretha Franklin became the first woman inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In 1986, when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announced its first group of inductees, the conspicuous problem with it was a complete absence of women among the top ten names, which included Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, Fats Domino, James Brown, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, and the Everly Brothers. The following year, Franklin's induction would kick open the door for other women while solidifying her reputation as the Queen of Soul and one of the most powerful voices in music. And in 1967, this week in music history, The Doors released their self-titled album, The Doors. You know the day destroys the night, night divides the day. Try to run, try to hide, break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side, break on through to the other side. Yeah. The album was recorded at Sunset Sound Studios in Hollywood, California over just six days. We chased our pleasures here. And in 2011, Scottish singer-songwriter Jerry Rafferty died at age 63 after a long illness. Rafferty had been a member of Steeler's Wheel, who had the 1973 U.S. number no. 3 single, Stuck in the Middle with You, and the solo 1978 U.S. number no. 2 single, Baker Street. The lead saxophone riff in Baker Street was so popular that there was a surge in saxophone sales so large that it caused a global shortage. And in 1975, Pink Floyd started recording sessions at Abbey Road Studios in London for their next album, Wish You Were Here. Their ninth studio album was released on the 12th of September in 1975 and features Shine On You Crazy Diamond, a tribute to Sid Barrett, whose mental breakdown had forced him to leave the group seven years earlier. Barrett, who just happens to have been born this week in history in 1946, went into his self-imposed seclusion for more than 30 years, enjoying life as an artist and a gardener. 
Barrett died at age 60 on the 7th of July in 2006 from complications arising from diabetes. And that's This Week in Music History. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Our American Stories. And the subject for this segment, well, actually, we just heard it a couple of times right there in that piece by Stevie Ray Vaughan. He had a nice, well, pause right there. And we've been pushing around this piece for, I don't know, since it seems like last year in praise of the one-second pause which Hengler worked up, and, uh, well, we're going to resuscitate it, because it seems like it's already been buried. And when we, we went to Hengler and said, hey, I think we should do that one-second pause. Now he went, what? You're serious. We're not going to really do it, are we? And we really are. 
And, uh, well, before we do, I just wanted to talk a little bit about why pauses matter in literature. And I don't know if you remember your class way back, if you ever took a poetry class or a writing class, but the Cesura is one of the most important literary devices there is in poetry. And, well, what it means, well, here's the actual definition from the Poetry Archive. A cesura is a strong pause within a line and is often found alongside an enjambment. If all the pauses in the sense of the poem were to occur at the line breaks, this could become dull. Moving the pauses so they occur within the line creates musical interest. A cesura may be marked like this, and then you'll see two straight lines next to each other. So when you're reading a poem and you see that, that means shut up, basically. Shut up. Two lines. John Mole's Coming Home has a first stanza that sets off in a very steady rhythm with the first four sentences the same length as the line and the same length as each other. The fifth sentence is only half a line long, and the pause following that full stop creates a really dramatic cesura. So again, where and how to use pauses. And by the way, musicians, great ones, especially as they get older. Listen to B.B. King play when he was young. Listen to him play when he was older. And I say the same for my dear and most beloved guitarist and my personal favorite, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Listen to him play when he was young, up and down the fret like a madman. Older, sometimes he'd just shut up. Hardest thing to do sometimes. By the way, all over the Bible, you'll see... The same thing, called something different. And I'm holding in my hand Psalm 3. Save me, O my God. That's one of the Psalms of David when he fled from Absalom with his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation from him in God. Cesur. I'm supposed to shut up now. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Cesura. So on and so forth. So now on to Hengler's in praise of the one-second pause. And, well, we're going to be talking to someone, or Greg did, named Marty Nemko, who holds a Ph.D. in education from the University of California, Berkeley. He is in his 26th year as a host of a national public radio, San Francisco radio show. And Marty recently wrote a piece for Psychology Today entitled, In Praise of the One Second Pause. He began his piece asking these questions. How do you feel when someone interrupts you? Very few people like it. Well, this question is harder. How do you feel when someone starts to talk the nanosecond you finish saying something? Chances are you don't like that either. After all, that suggests that the person was more interested in saying something than in digesting what you said. Or maybe the person stopped paying attention and was just waiting for you to finish. Now, in contrast, imagine that you finished saying something and the person took a full second to think. Maybe saying, hmm, now how are you feeling? You're probably feeling the person thought your statement was worth pondering and more foundational that you were taken seriously, which we all want. 
Well, we had our American stories. Greg Hengler asked Marty, what would we say to someone who just likes to talk and never takes that breath? Or how would we respond to somebody who consistently interrupts us? Here's Marty's answer. It's very difficult to change people, but I am a big believer in giving tactfully dispensed unwanted advice. So if somebody really is interrupting me all the time, I would, in a very tactful and simple way, say, I I really'd like to finish. And if you watch CNN or you watch any kind of TV or radio show, you'll see that the experienced guests who are on panels, if there is one of their um, panelists is interrupting all the time, they'll say something like, I allowed you to finish, please allow me, and do that in that very calm way. You pay a price no matter what. You pay a price if you ignore it, but you pay a bigger price if you're constantly ignored. And again, it depends on the situation. If you're getting interviewed for a job, I'm not sure you're going to want to interrupt the interviewer and say, to tell the interrupter, would you please stop interrupting me? But in more common situations where the risk-reward ratio is better, it may be worth offering a bit of gentle feedback. We know a man who adheres to a four-sentence rule. This involves speaking approximately four sentences and then waiting to see if the listener wants to hear more. He does this because we often say more than our listener wants to hear. Is this rule basically a different take compared to your one-second pause suggestion? It's a very different rule, and I find that... Uh, too rigid. That's the rule of how long you should talk. I'm much more in favor of what I call the traffic light rule. During the first 30 seconds of an utterance, your light is green. The person is paying attention, uh, not overwhelmed with content. During the second 30 seconds of an utterance, your light is yellow. There's an increased chance that the person is wishing you would stop or indeed has something that he or she wants to say. At the 60-second mark, you occasionally uh, want to run a red light, which is, uh, but usually you want to stop. So I think that gives a little more flexibility than four sentences because sometimes things take less than four sentences and sometimes more. Boy, these are really good rules to live by, actually. Never really thought about that before. I think I've got like a nine-minute rule. i got to really work on this. Man. Here's Marty on a pet peeve he has involving conversation. Narcissism. Normally in a conversation, it is like a ping-pong game. You want to spend roughly half the time with the ball in your court. Roughly, it's more like 40 to 60% in a conversation. And very many people violate the rule in either direction. They're either narcissistic and they will talk about 80 or 90% of the time and never ask a question about you. Or if they do, it's obligatory, and then they're, but they're really not paying attention. They're only half listening. Or on the other hand, of course, there are people who have difficulty speaking up and who talk 20, 10 to 20% of the time. So a nice rule of thumb is to go for roughly 40 to 60% of the time using the traffic light rule and using the one second pause. But I would be full of BS if I said that was very easy to change. It is very difficult to change a natural habit of interrupting, talking at too great length, and not pausing. Well, so far we have chose to cut out Greg's question to Marty, but for this one, we will be including Greg's question because it's a personal one. But wait for it, so is Marty's answer. I don't necessarily consider myself a narcissist, but I I know that I struggle with returning the favor when somebody asks me a question, you know, how was your day? What'd you do this weekend? A lot of times I'll give them an answer and then I won't say, well, how was yours? And then I walk away and I can, it's usually four or five minutes later. I'm like, oh man, I did it again. I didn't ask them. I just must come off as just selfish. Yeah, well, that's what the narcissist thing is about. It becomes <laughs> not high enough priority that while you count, so does your conversation partner. Ouch. Ouch. 
That stung. Greg asked for some clarity. So I fall into the narcissist's carrier. Well, it's too strong. I mean, okay. you're way ahead of the game because you're concerned about it. You're aware about it. You're in that interim transition period from when you are unaware and just oblivious and continuing to blather on and a full conversation partner. So I would bet that you will do fine. It's, you're, you're just in that transition period. You're not a narcissist. There you go, folks. None of us here have perfected the art of dialogue and thought this would be a piece of advice we could all put in our back pocket and actually use in praise of the one-second pause. And don't forget, 30 seconds, green light, 45 seconds, yellow light. You go past a minute and don't let the other guy talk, you got a problem. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. That's following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. Here's our own Alex Cortez with our 18th feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. The Corps of Discovery is celebrating. On December 23rd, they finished the construction of their winter fort among the Mandan Indians. It took them 52 days to build something that they'd only be living in for twice as many more days. Pretty remarkable to put yourself through that. But anyways, they were celebrating this and another occasion. 24 December. 1804. We fired our swivel cannons as tomorrow is Christmas Day. I love this story. This is one of the great moments of the entire expedition. We're listening to Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical. We proceeded on. So, Lewis is a deist, and like Jefferson, his mentor, he believes that. Christmas is an arbitrary holiday, a lingering saint's day from the Catholic tradition that uh, it's impossible that Jesus could actually be said to have been born on the 25th of December, or extremely unlikely, and that Christmas is a kind of an artificial legacy of of a more superstitious time. Jefferson frequently traveled on Christmas. When he wasn't traveling, he frequently got his financial accounts brought up to date. Jefferson was not a an observer of Christmas. However, the captains wisely decided that they wanted the men to have Christmas, that they wanted to celebrate what they called a medicine day. They told the native peoples to stay away. We had requested them not to come. They didn't want them to be lingering. And so the native peoples did stay away on Christmas. The savages did not trouble us. Here's Joseph Whitehouse. Tuesday, December 25th. This morning being Christmas, the day was announced by the discharge of our swivel cannons and one round from our small arms of the whole company. 
And despite this explosive announcement of Christmas by the enlisted men to their captains, the captains still stayed in their sleeping quarters. It was before dawn. I was awakened by a discharge of three cannons, and each man fired one round. About seven o'clock a.m., we fired our swivels again. When Captain Clark came out of his quarters and... Uh-oh. Would he yell at them? Or would he be too sleep-deprived to say or do much of anything? Presented a glass of rum to each man of our party. We learn about a form of taffia, a form of rum, that has not previously been mentioned in the journals. Clark saved it for an occasion such as this. He then ordered the American flag to be hoisted, which, being done, he presented them again with another glass of rum. Just imagine these macho men standing around all together, raising their nation's flag, and then gloriously toasting its successful raise with yet another glass of alcohol. It's so beautiful. It's really beautiful. So they're running the flag up for the first time. So the, the fort is now completed. Uh, they have a flagpole. I mean, just imagine the, each man when, who, whom they're missing, their families. Some of them had wives. All of them had parents, uh, cousins, brothers, sisters, friends. You know, you cannot spend Christmas away from your kin without some pretty somber reflection. There's a loneliness. I've spent several Christmases of my life away from everyone that I loved, and it's a very interesting day in that respect. And the fact that the captains did something to commemorate it and make it more special, I think, is a is a truly amazing insight into their into their leadership skills. Uh, but also, I think that running up the flag, you know, three cheers for America. Um, we band of brothers, we happy few, that sort of thing. And Clark's willingness to really provide plenty of liquor in the course of the day. If you add up the number of, of glasses, you know, the, there must have been men who got drunk. Um, and when people get drunk, they get boisterous or they get somber or they get self-pitying or they weep or they shout or they fight or they want sex or all of the above. But there was more alcohol poured on Christmas Day, 1804, than at any other time during the course of the expedition. And that had to have an effect. The men commenced dancing. Two violins and plenty of musicians in our party. At 10 a.m., the whole party were again served with another glass of rum. They continued dancing till 1 o'clock when our cannon was fired off as a signal for dinner. At half an hour past two o'clock, another cannon was fired to assemble at the dance. So we kept it up in a jovial manner until eight o'clock at night. It's charming. There's almost a little feeling of Charles Dickens in it. And all without the company of the female sex. Besides the lack of females, there was another thing that was off. There's no evidence that Lewis made an appearance that day. 
a number of people are keeping journals. Lewis is not one of them, but Clark is. And Clark says, I gave the men an extra salute, and I came out and offered them some more uh, alcohol, and a dance ensued, and Ordway's writing, and Gas is writing, and White House is writing. But Lewis makes no appearance. We don't know whether he came out and congratulated everyone or engaged in any of the convivialities. But there's absolutely no textual evidence that he did. And we have to assume, since he's not mentioned, and Clark is by the other journal keepers, Ordway mentions Clark, Gass mentions Clark, and that Clark went out of his way to um, to say generous things to the men on this occasion. We have to assume that either they ignored the fact that Lewis, too, was part of the leadership that day, or, I think... Lewis might have been holed up in his own cabin and made little or no appearance. And, I mean, you get, almost get the sense of Lewis as Ebenezer Scrooge. It's, it's, it's startling. You know, the, the journals are as interesting for what they don't say than for what they do. For, they're as interesting for what they omit as for what they describe. And the omission of any reference to Lewis on the 25th of December, 1804, is one of the most startling moments in the entire expedition. I have wondered about this because it seems so sad that Lewis, maybe as a deist, maybe he's lonely, maybe he's thinking of home, maybe he's he's like Sheldon on Big Bang Theory and he's busy you know, keeping records and doing his own thing. But if Lewis isolated himself and did not engage in any way in the Christmas celebration at Fort Mandan. That really tells us something remarkable about the differences between the two captains. And I've wondered myself for many years whether there was a captain's supply of alcohol. You know, we know that Lewis had a drinking problem before the expedition and that he had a drinking problem after the expedition. The journals are entirely silent about Lewis and alcohol during the expedition. But I think we have to ask ourselves if there was a captain's supply, and and it is at least possible that Lewis was drinking privately in the course of the expedition, particularly when there was privacy, when he could shut the door on his cabin as he could within the confines of Port Mandan. I, I just have this intuition that Lewis may have been having a very difficult time in addition to his trouble with drinking, Lewis was also troubled with depression most of his life. It can't simply be explained by the fact that he was a religious skeptic and a deist like Thomas Jefferson. But if you read the journals of every member of the expedition for that day, uh, with this in mind, I, I think you will inevitably come to the conclusion that Lewis either didn't make an appearance that day or his appearance was so understated and so formal that no member of the expedition thought it appropriate to mention him when they talk about the celebration of Christmas at Fort Mandan. And great work as always on that, Alex, and we look forward to the next. And by the way, if you want to catch all of these, and again, we're up to number 18 on our most epic road trip ever series, the Lewis and Clark series. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and take a listen.
And thanks, as always, to our resident expert, Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical, We Proceeded On. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at claydjenkinson.com. He's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. And yes, the man deserves it. The most epic road trip ever, here on Our American Stories. is our American stories. Winston Churchill, who, by the way, is portrayed brilliantly by Gary Oldman in Darkest Hour. See it if you get a chance. Churchill made 16 visits to America in his lifetime. He traveled here as a soldier, a tourist, and a lecturer. But the late Prime Minister's visit to America in 1941 as a wartime leader was by far his most important. And the speech he gave on December 26, 1941, may have been his most important too, though certainly not as well known as his Iron Curtain speech in 1946 in Fulton, Missouri. And by the way, we did a terrific segment on that, and you can hear Winston give that speech. We love doing that here on this show. The story of that trip back in the winter of 1941 is worth telling. It revealed a lot about not just Churchill's status, as a great leader and a great statesman, but as a great salesman, and an indefatigable one, too. The day after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Churchill, who had just turned 67, packed his bags and headed straight for the United States. It would be the most important sales trip of his life, and perhaps the most important sale of the 20th century. The stakes for his home country and the world could not have been higher. Quote, with the fall of France, Britain stood alone decisively inferior in military power to the Nazis, explained Dr. Larry Arne in a speech delivered at Hillsdale College in Michigan. The only thing that could save it was the English Channel and ultimately the entry into the war of the United States. Nobody understood that stark reality better than Churchill. It was why he was on a boat crossing the Atlantic so soon after one of America's darkest hours. His plan was simple. Strengthen relations with President Roosevelt, Congress, and the American people, and prepare them for the exigencies of an extended and difficult war. It was a long trip of ten days through cold, storm-tossed seas. It was a dangerous one, too. U-boats filled the Atlantic. There were serious concerns about Churchill's safety. But Churchill was not deterred. The work ahead was too important, and that work could not be done through phone. Churchill's boat docked in Norfolk, Virginia, just two weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor. He immediately flew 140 miles north to National Airport in Washington, D.C., where Roosevelt greeted him. Churchill spent the next few days at the White House as a house guest, 
a self-invited house guest, no less, doing what he did best, talking, drinking, smoking, and keeping Roosevelt up until the wee hours in the morning. Eleanor Roosevelt said of Churchill, quote, It was astonishing to me that anyone could smoke so much and drink so much and keep perfectly well. Having successfully bonded with Roosevelt and having mapped out some important wartime planning, Churchill moved on to an equally important objective, bonding with the U.S. Congress and the American public and selling them on the importance and the inevitability of a combined American and England to combat the Axis powers. For days on end, Churchill worked on his big speech, honing and crafting it in ways only he could. One thing Churchill knew for sure as he was preparing was this. Without the American people on his side, his home country was lost. He began the greatest sale of his life to a joint session of Congress with these words. Members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives of the United States, I feel greatly honored that you should have invited me to enter the United States Senate chamber and address the representatives of both branches of Congress. The fact that my American forebears have for so many generations played their part in the life of the United States and that here I am, an Englishman, welcomed in your midst, makes this experience one of the most moving and thrilling in my life, which is already long and has not been entirely uneventful. I, I, wish, I wish indeed that my mother, whose uh, memory I cherish, across the veil of years, could have been here to see. Churchill then made clear our countries were connected by much more than a common language. I may confess, however, that I do not feel quite like a fish out of water in a legislative assembly where English is spoken. I'm a child of the House of Commons. I was brought up in my father's house to believe in democracy, trust the people. That was his message. I used to see him cheered at meetings and in the streets by crowds of working men way back in those aristocratic Victorian days when, as the Israeli said, the world was for the few and for the very few. Therefore, I have been in full harmony all my life with the tides which have flowed on both sides of the Atlantic against privilege and monopoly. And I have steered confidently towards the Gettysburg ideal of government of the people, by the people, for the people. What words, what words. I have been in full harmony all my life with the tides which have flowed on both sides of the Atlantic against privilege and monopoly, and I have steered confidently towards the Gettysburg ideal 
of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And when we come back, you're going to hear the rest of this remarkable speech, every word of it written by Churchill himself, delivered like only Churchill could. The sale of the century, the most important sale of Churchill's life, of perhaps Western civilization's life as we know it. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Churchill's joint session of Congress speech the day after Christmas in 1941. Churchill next addressed our very best angels, more certain about the true nature and character of America than many of its own leaders. I should like to say, first of all, how much I have been impressed and encouraged by the breadth of view and sense of proportion which I have found in all quarters over here to which I've had access. Anyone who did not understand the size and solidarity of the foundations of the United States might easily have expected to find an excited, disturbed, self-centered atmosphere with all minds fixed upon the novel, startling and painful episodes of sudden war as they hit America. After all, the United States have been attacked and set upon by three most powerfully armed dictator states, the greatest military power in Europe, the greatest military power in Asia. Japan, Germany, and Italy have all declared and are making war upon you. And a quarrel is open which can only end in their overthrow or yours. But here in Washington, in these memorable days, I have found an Olympian fortitude, which far from being based upon complacency, is only the mask of an inflexible purpose and the proof of a sure, well-grounded confidence in the final outcome. (laughs) We in Britain had the same feeling in our darkest days. We too were sure that in the end, all would be well. This was not merely a call to arms. It was a spiritual affirmation of all that was good in America and in his home country. The speech then took a tough turn as Churchill walked Congress and the American people through the difficulties of the task ahead. He understood intuitively his audience could handle what he was about to tell them and that they would rise to the challenge. You do not, I am certain, underrate the severity of the ordeal to which you and we 
have still to be subjected. The forces ranged against us are enormous. They are bitter, they are ruthless. The wicked men and, the, and their factions who have launched their peoples on the path of war and conquest know that they will be called to terrible account if they cannot beat down by force of arms the peoples they have assailed. They will stop at nothing. They have a vast accumulation of war weapons of all kinds. They have highly trained and disciplined armies, navies and air services. They have plans and designs which have long been contrived and matured. They will stop at nothing that violence or treachery can suggest. It is quite true that on our side, our resources in manpower and materials are far greater than theirs. But only a portion of your resources are as yet mobilized and developed. And we both of us have much to learn in the cruel art of war. We have therefore, without doubt, a time of tribulation before us. In this same time, some ground will be lost, which it will be hard and costly to regain. Many disappointments and unpleasant surprises await us. Where many of them will afflict us before the full marshalling of our latent and total power can be accomplished. Churchill wasn't finished talking about the rough path ahead, and he invoked scripture to close out this critical part of his speech. No one knew better than Churchill that there was indeed a great spiritual battle ahead, and he wasn't afraid to define it in those stark terms. Some people may be startled or momentarily depressed when, like your president, I speak of a long and a hard war. Our peoples would rather know the truth, somber though it be. And after all, when we are doing the noblest work in the world, not only defending our hearths and homes, but the cause of freedom in every land, the question of whether deliverance comes in 1942 or 1943 or 1944 falls into its proper place in the grand proportions of human history. Sure I am that this day, now we are the masters of our fate, that the task which has been set us is not above our strength, that its pangs and toils are not beyond our endurance. As long as we have faith, in our cause, and uh, an unconquerable willpower, salvation will not be denied us. In the words of the psalmist, he shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Churchill then closed out his speech to the American people and to Congress by invoking the spiritual dimension of the battle one last time, 
and the common belief in such things the two great allies, England and America, shared. If you will allow me to use other language, I will say that he must indeed have a, a blind soul who cannot see that some great purpose and design is being worked out here below, of which we have the honor to be the faithful servants. It is not given to us to peer into the mysteries of the future. Still I avow my hope and faith, sure and inviolate, that in the days to come, the British and American peoples will for their own safety and for the good of all walk together in majesty, in justice, and in peace. And with those final words, the members of Congress roared with approval, as you're hearing. It went on for over a minute. Churchill responded, the flashing V victory sign that would become his signature gesture. On New Year's Day, Roosevelt and Churchill visited nearby Mount Vernon to lay a wreath on the tomb of our nation's first president and one of our great warriors, George Washington. Soon thereafter, they met with diplomats from several allied countries to sign a joint declaration to fight the Axis powers. None, they agreed, would negotiate a separate peace. On January 14, 1942, after nearly a month away from his home, the 67-year-old Churchill left for war-torn London with one of his greatest victories. Quote, His visit to the United States has marked a turning point of the war, a Times of London editorial opined upon Churchill's return. No praise can be too high for the farsightedness and promptness of the decision to make it. You know, David McCullough once said that when people are in history and they're studying history, nothing had to happen the way it happened. And that in the end, decisions are made and great men step up. And without it, the world is different. And Churchill, my goodness, what a life lived. What a speech. The greatest sale of the century. I'm going to close with a reading from Dr. Larry Arne's great book, Churchill's Trial. And here's the quote. Churchill had made a speech about the American Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Magna Carta, the documents that mattered and changed the world. All this means, Churchill said, was that people of any country have the right and should have the power by constitutional action, by free, unfettered elections with secret ballots to choose or change the character or form of government under which they dwell, that freedom of speech and thought should reign, that courts of justice, independent of the executive, unbiased by any party, should administer laws which have received the broad assent of large majorities or are consecrated by time and custom. Here, here are the title deeds of freedom which should live in every cottage home. Here is the message of the British and American peoples to mankind. Let us preach what we practice and let us practice what we preach. This is Our American Stories. Churchill's Greatest Sale.
with our American stories, and we're fortunate to be joined by Arthur Brooks, the president of the American Enterprise Institute, and I know you're wondering about this bumpin' music. Uh, it's not our ordinary bumpin' music, but it's, uh, well, why should we explain? Uh, this is how Arthur Brooks let off a recent column in the New York Times about mobility, and about, in the end, I think, freedom and the human heart. Uh, Arthur, a pleasure to have you on our show. Hey, Lee, how are you? It's great to talk to you. Same here. Now, Arthur, that song, everybody's listening to it. Tell people about what they were just listening to. Well, that's a song about the open road, isn't it? It's a song about uh, adventure and uh, the way your life's supposed to be. You know, it's a, it's a crazy thing. You know, when you look back and how people talked uh, as recently as 100 years ago, even less, about the American spirit. And if you look back and uh, no doubt in how your own ancestors talked about the adventure in their lives, and I was talked about doing new things and going new places and, and looking for the opportunity in their lives. You know, I, I look back over the past couple hundred years in my own family, and you know, they moved every generation west, you know, one step ahead of the law or looking for a new job or something. Yep. And, you know, it was the open road is the sense of rebuilding your life on the basis of opportunity and adventure. And you know, that's what, it's a funny song. It's the funniest bump in music I've heard in a long time. But, man, it kind of captures it, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, when you think about this mobility, I mean, in the end, people moved here from far away to begin with. So, I mean, in the end, in the, end the beginning of every American life started with moving to begin with. Yeah, for sure. Look, I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm going to go, I'm going to say, you're, I mean, you're Lebanese, right? Yep. And you're, you're grand, probably your granddad or maybe your dad. My granddad. My granddad. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, fantastic. There's so many good people. This is a country of, and, and interesting to, to think about it this way, you know, no, nobody came here rich. I'm, I'm going to say that your grandfather wasn't a rich guy. <laughs> you're right. Probably like my great-grandparents, basically ambitious riffraff. That's who we are yep. as a country, right? And, you know, some, some listeners are going, well, actually, my family wasn't ambitious. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, you know, this is, the country is not made up of dukes and earls and nobility and gentry. No, it's made up of people who basically came from someplace else where they couldn't make it and said, I'm gonna, my life is a startup. I'm going to be an entrepreneur with my own life, basically. You know, that's the American spirit. That's what we need. Dig into your grandfather's life, because I love asking people about their parents and their parents' parents. Uh, it's just, it's almost how I start every interview. I also ask people about their first job as well, Arthur. But tell me about your granddad and where he grew up and where he moved around. My grandparents uh, were from South Dakota, and their, their parents were immigrants from Denmark. Uh, and, you know, recently I was making a movie in Denmark, and, you know, part of the reason I went there is it was a movie about happiness. And, 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 I, and I went to the place where my great-grandparents immigrated away from, and, and I wanted to know. I mean, everybody says the Danish people are the happiest people in the world. So why would my great-grandparents leave? And the answer is because they wanted more than they could get from that culture. They wanted to. They left because they had a first-grade education, and they were the wrong religion, and they were poor, and they were orphans. And they said, huh, I've heard about this place called America, South Dakota. I bet we could start our own farm. And they did. They went to South Dakota. They, were, they had nothing. They had 12 kids. They wound up, uh, you know, in the first grade education, their kids graduated from high school. Their grandkids went to college. And great-grandkid is president of the American Enterprise Institute. It's crazy. It's, it is indeed crazy. And, you know, that song we talked about was Walt Whitman's Song of the, of the Open Road. And, Arthur, in this column you wrote, and I'm going to quote, 
I inherited my grandfather's wanderlust, albeit in a strain that's more Kerriac than Whitman. Who's Jack Kerriac, for folks who don't know? And tell us about your wanderlust. Well, Jack Kerouac was writing in the 1960s, and he was, uh, he's kind of a beat writer. Um, and he's not very popular among conservatives like me, simply because he was so uh, in part of the drug culture, etc. But the thing that's attractive about him is that he was going from place to place talking about new adventures in his own life. Walt Whitman did the same thing 100 years before, a lot more, with a lot better values, I have to say. And, you know, this has been the kind of the soundtrack of American life forever. You asked about that grandfather. That was actually on the other side. This is a guy who, you know, he, he his family had been in the United States for a couple hundred years at this point, but, you know, he always had this itch. So he started off, uh, he decided he was going to start a, a missionary school in the Navajo Nation in New Mexico, started the Methodist Mission School, and then picked up and went to Wheaton College, where he wound up being the dean of students, and then he was, you know, gave up everything and just traveled around the United States with a trailer uh, as, a, as a traveling missionary, uh, effectively. And, you know, that's really the American spirit. It's really good stuff. It is Jack Kerouac or Walt Whitman, but all in the, the Christian mood. It's good stuff. It is. And, you know, we just did an hour on Henry Ford, and it's particularly the early part of his life struck us because he just hated the farming life. His father insisted he stay on the farm. Henry had other ideas. And indeed, a large part of it, it turns out, why he did what he did is he wanted more people to be able to escape the farm. And what more represents that ability to, to escape uh, a life that you once knew than the car itself, Arthur? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's absolutely right. You know, when people are it's funny, I talk to people all the time who are regretting cars, regretting fossil fuels, you know, people who talk about the oil industry who are somehow evil, man, they, these guys, they produce liquid freedom. I know. You know nobody can, can, can basically say, I'm sorry you live in Oklahoma, you can go to Texas. No, no, no. Gas up your car and go. You know, there's a lot of good things, by the way, that the country did, even the government did, building the interstate highway system. Why was that? To make people more free. The job of the government should always always be not to make people less free, but to make people more free. And that was a good example of how we were actually able to do it. And this is true, but it actually requires something else, Lee. It requires a culture and a mentality and a morality written on the heart of the American to want to do this. <laughs> you know, this is really what kind of worries me, what I've been writing about lately, is we can celebrate the open road. We can celebrate my granddad with his trailer and, and Walt Whitman and the stuff that we're talking about here. But if we don't have Americans who really want to avail themselves of this kind of freedom, who say things are not right, I can't find a job. I'm going to go in search of my earned success. If we don't have Americans who are willing to do that, then it really doesn't matter how much freedom there is, is it? Doesn't no, it? it's so true. We talked to a young girl earlier, Arthur, named Jane Johnson, and she is a young girl in, uh, from the west side of Chicago, has a tough life, tough neighborhood, uh, but she went ahead and got herself a technical degree, and the day she graduated, a guy who owned a machine shop saw something in this girl and said, hey, I want to hire you. And he always does this, by the way. He goes to that graduation ceremony and picks at least one or two kids from the tough side of the tracks and gives them jobs. He has 80 employees now, and he employs a bunch of those people 20 years after having started this ritual. I asked Jane, have you told some of your friends in the West Side about this program, which, by the way, is free. It's pro bono through a church. And she said, I can't get any takers, but that's not going to stop me. And so it gets to your point, Arthur, right there in the neighborhood. They don't even have to move. They just have to walk a few blocks. 
And yet yeah. there's something mapped on their human heart. And I think it has a lot to do with the government programs that tells them not to make that move for themselves. Yeah. You know, it actually has been very tough. Uh, let's make no mistake about it. Over the past few decades, and, and particularly since the end of the Great Recession, there, there is less opportunity out there than there was before. But if you go back 100 years, there were times of a real lack of opportunity. And, and there was nothing that people could do except pick up and move if they actually needed to find some way to support themselves and support their families. Now, I want, given the fact that the country is much richer, to be able to help people so they don't fall too far. But I don't want to ruin this. I don't want to ruin this American spirit. I want people to to get up and move. I'm trying to find some sort of happy medium here, Lee. And, and you know, I, I'm looking around today, and, and I see some things I don't like. You know, if, if you look at the, the percentage of men um, age 20 to 64, which is working age, who are not institutionalized, meaning they're not in prison and they're not in the military, the percentage of those guys that are idle, not even in the workforce, has gone from 7% when you and I were kids, Lee, to 17% today. Basically, it's, you know, we're talking doubling and tripling the number of guys, you know, practically one in five men in America today is sitting out, the wor- sitting out of the workforce, and we can't sustain that. That really changes our country. No, it does, and it changes our culture as well. And again, it changes the hearts of these men and women who sit out. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And when we come back, Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute, writing about an important subject on this show, mobility. And in the end, freedom. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return with Dee Marks. We're celebrating National Adoption Month, and now we're talking about that second child she adopted, CJ, whom she got through one of the Dave Thomas Foundation's Wendy's Wonderful Kids Recruiters. And kudos to the incredible work the Dave Thomas Foundation does, and it just shows you the power of philanthropic work. The power of American business, the heart and soul of, for my money, capitalism, because it was with this great success that Dave Thomas had that he wanted to give back. And oh my goodness, there is no better way to give back than listening to a story like this. Dee, what we were struck by during the break, almost like someone had kicked our entire staff. I'm looking at Faith and Stan and Alex and Jesse, and it's when you said this child had never had a toy, it was like a kick in the gut. Just take us back to that again and what was going on and what did the, what did the, the folks with the experts explain that? Uh, how did they explain that? What did they attribute it to? Well, there weren't necessarily experts, but when I questioned the caseworker about it and she had indicated that he was too rough on the toys, you have to remember that from the age of two on, this child lived in a foster care situation where the toys were not just his. The toys belonged to other kids that were in the foster home, whether they were biologically related to the parents or whether they were other foster children. And so um, she felt 
um, that since he was so damaging to the toys that the family felt they couldn't replace them for everybody else all the time. And so it was better just for him not to have access to them. And, um, and for me, when, when that, that was almost like a puzzle piece went into place, um, as to part of how much damage, for lack of a better word, that my child had experienced because if if because of his behaviors, we're not giving him toys. We're also not taking him out into the community the way other kids by the time they're eight. Those are experiences that every kid learn from and develop and grow. And my son at eight had not had those experiences. And that kind of, for the most part, shut down a lot of the growth that he potentially could have had because his behaviors were so much in the way of people feeling comfortable with exposing him to that outside world. Well, you gave a perfect example when that toy truck was put in front of him and you showed him what to do. This disabused the caseworkers of the fact that he had some kind of spatial problem or some kind of cognitive problem that he couldn't actually interact with a toy truck. Talk about that. Correct. Um, when when I first got him and I gave him a truck, he flipped it upside down and he would just spin the wheels across, you know, with his fingertips. And at first, you know, the occupational therapist and, and even myself thought, that's a sensory thing. A lot of kids with autism have sensory things. They like to watch spinning things and things like that. But then when I actually bought a little floor rug that was shaped like a road map and I put the truck down on there and I'm like, okay, we've got to make the truck go to the store, vroom, vroom, vroom. He immediately was able to replicate it, and then he never picked up the truck and spun the wheels again. He always played with it on the floor mat or on the floor or on the back deck or wherever we happened to be at. And so that was a very strong indication to me that this was not a sensory need um, because otherwise he still would have engaged in that. Um, he no longer engaged in it. He played appropriately with it. Now he was still rougher, you know. Um, it would crash into walls really hard <laughs> and stuff. But then you teach him, no, you know, we got to be gentle so that our toy can, you know, stay together because if it breaks, we can't use it. So you, all those things, we just had to step back and we had to teach him the things that most people are taught, most kids are taught, between the ages of one and a half and two years old. Yep. Tell us a story um, about the first time that you and CJ experienced pouring rain together. What happened, and how did you address it? Um, no one had warned me that apparently my son had a very significant sensory issue to rain. Um, and so I had no awareness of it, and we had gone in to go grocery shopping together. And um, we had just gotten to the point where CJ was no longer having to ride in the grocery cart but could hold on to the side of the grocery cart. And so he was holding on to the side. We come out to the parking lot, and it's pouring rain. And bless his little heart, he immediately went down to the ground in the parking lot and covered his head to protect himself. It was like a painful experience for him, and he was terrified. And so um, I, I, I can't control the rain. It's as simple as that. I can control whether he takes a bath or a shower and things like that, but I cannot control when it's going to rain. So I immediately, right then, said, we got to deal with this right now, right here. Um, and so we both held onto the cart, and I said, we're just going to walk, 
the rain doesn't hurt you. It's like getting a bath. It's just washing your body and making it clean. And they just kept saying that over and over in a soothing voice as we walked. And we walked for five minutes. And then we got in the car and I, I said, is your body safe? And he he said his body is safe because he talks third person. And um, and I said, okay. I said, the water didn't hurt you. You can dry off. We'll dry off when we get home, when we get a towel. And so then every time we would be in rain, he didn't hit the ground, but he still would kind of crunch his shoulders up a little bit, you know. And um, And then he started to learn to self-talk, which was amazing. He would say to himself, that water doesn't hurt you. You're okay. It's like getting a bath. And so he used the same language that I used to calm himself. And now rain is still not his preference, um, but we don't have any issues if we actually have to walk in the rain. Um, And so I'm excited because these are the things that I just look at. And if someone had just taken a moment of time, one, it took me five minutes to process that with him in that parking lot that day. If someone had done that when he was three, that would have been one more thing that he would have been ahead on, and he would have been ready for the real world in a better sense of the word. You bet. And, um, and that's, that's the unfortunate thing, unfortunately, with foster care systems, is oftentimes they don't have the training to know what to do in those situations. Um, not that they don't want to help the child, but this child needed really unique specialized care and foster care was not prepared to handle that. And so things just didn't happen that should have happened to help my child grow. Um, and that's why we've seen such amazing growth in the last five years that I've had him. That's beautiful. It's, it's, It's just beautiful day. Everything we're hearing. I know the audience is just, is just being, is moved. There are folks listening who are thinking about maybe adopting, uh, and hopefully, uh, after your story, they might lean more towards that that thought. You also run your own business, Dee. How do you do it as a single mom? And were there ever any moments where you questioned your decision to adopt? And do you still sometimes have doubts? Okay, I'll start with the beginning. I run my own business, and I started my own business so I could control my hours better to be more available for my kids. Yep. If you have a child with special needs, they have different and more frequent doctor's appointments. Um, They have sometimes issues at school that you immediately have to attend to um, and things like that. And so I very quickly realized that that was going to be the best fit for our family, for me to be able to provide for the family and yet still be available um, when I needed to be available. Um, So that's why I started running my own business. As far as doing it alone, I get asked that a lot. And I look back and I go, I don't think I'd do it any other way. Um, and part of it is because I got to make the decisions and we could just immediately move forward because I didn't have to have a discussion with somebody. And I think part of my kids advancing, both of them, was because we did have that sense of immediacy that we could move forward with. And, um, and also, I want my kids to see someone strong, um, that supports them and that anyone can be a parent. If neither of my kids ever get married, I still want them to still know that they can choose to be a parent um, and, a, and a really good one. So I don't have any regrets with that. 
regrets with taking the children um, right after I got both of them because their disabilities were so extreme. There were times, yes, I went to bed and I cried. I would, I would go in and I'd say, I love you. Mommy loves you. Good night. Everything's, you know, in my voice, everything's fine. And I would shut their door and I'd go to my room and I'd cry because I would have self-doubt. What if I'm not the right person to help them through this? Um, what if this is how it is forever? What if we never get better than the point we're at? Um, with CJ, because he had rad, what if he never bonds with me? What if he's never able to accept a hug from his own mom? So, of course, I had doubts. Um, that being said, those doubts are kind of what motivated me the next day to get up and push a little harder because I wanted it to work. Um, I saw potential in both of my kids to be something that was further than what they were at that moment. And I recognize as a mom, that's my job, to step behind them and support them while they're moving through it and to catch them when they're falling. Um, and so part of it is you have to just kind of say those doubts are normal. I don't think there's any mom out there in the world, whether they have special needs kids, adopted kids, or their own birth children, that has not gone to bed and doubted something you, about raising their you child. You bet. You bet. And, Dee, thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing your story. It's National Adoption Month, folks. There's no better way to show love than to adopt. And Dee Marks adopted two special needs children and one through the help of the folks at the Dave Thomas Foundation, Wendy's wonderful kids recruiters, what work you do. Thank you so much again, Dee. What a story about love, about God's love. This is Our American Story.